0: Seventeen, Romans 1 ashamed of the gospel by faith would you pray with me our father God we thank you that we can come here in the name of Jesus Christ by faith trusting in all that he has done to bring us to you we sung already about the cleansing blood of Jesus that washes away all our sins that brings us into a right relationship with our triune God we pray that as we sense your love, Father, that the Lord Jesus would be leading us through this time and that your Holy Spirit would be opening our hearts and minds and applying these words to our heart that we might live in boldness of the gospel, not with shame, but knowing its great, uh, the great weight of what you have done for poor sinners like us to bring us to you. So be you here with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we go through our passage, I want to take us on a journey through the eyes of Martin Luther um, and what Martin Luther's experienced as he engaged this text. Uh, This was actually the watershed verse for him that opened his eyes to the gospel. And so what we will see is that, um, but it took, it was kind of an unexpected journey. Um, When Martin Luther first encountered this verse, he was deeply troubled by it. In fact, um, it, it kind of ruined his life, and he found himself in a prison. So we want to see what Mar- how Martin Luther got that from this verse. Um, but then, as he began to study it more deeply and think about it, um, what was in the text was not a prison at all, but a palace, something where he could uh, run free with God and wonder with God in boldness. And we'll see how that happened. And lastly... Uh, that as Martin Luther realized the freedom that he had from the gospel, from a prison into a palace of God's grace, it put made him a person who was transformed for mission, and the rest of his life was used um, for the benefit of all people to hear the gospel, and we benefit from his work today. Um, and so, uh, in order to see the impact of This scripture, Um, I want to start where Martin Luther started, not in verse 16, but actually in verse 17. Um, And uh, I want you to hear what he thought about. Um, He says that uh, as he reads this verse, in it the righteousness of God is revealed stood in my way. For I hated that word, righteousness of God, which, according to the use of the customs of all the teachers, I had been taught that God is righteous and punishes. Unrighteous sinners, and so uh, the, what what, ha, what was happening in Martin Luther's life was that he was reading as he read this scripture where he heard about the righteousness of God, he zeroed in on this phrase, the righteousness of God. It doesn't matter what the other words were surrounding that phrase. Um, the idea of studying things in their context was, in some ways, uh, some ways novel. People would sometimes focus in on these key phrases in the Bible and just rip them from their context. And every time that Martin Luther saw the righteousness of God, um, he would just be upset. In his own words, he said he hated this word um, because all he saw was this righteous God who has such a high standard um, of righteousness, which was clearly taught from the Bible, um, that all he had for people like you and me was his justice. He had to be just, um, and in order to be just, he had to mete out punishment for anyone who broke his law. Um, And so the only thing, and Martin Luther was very honest with himself. Um, When he looked at his life, all he had to look forward to with God was punishment. And so you might ask, where did that, that's a weird thing for someone to to think of, where did that come from? And where it came from, as he said, was all his teachers. See, Luther wasn't reading the Bible. He was listening to what all his teachers were saying. and And all he heard was condemnation. And this punishment that God was going to give to everyone who broke His law, and that's that's all He had. And so, on on this one hand, as Martin Luther is is listening in church, he begins to hate this idea of the righteousness of God. So that's what was happening on one hand. But on the other hand, Martin Luther was an exceptional lawyer. Before Martin Luther became a, uh, his father was a mineral hardworking family. His grandfather was a farmer, and then. Uh, his father was a mineral miner, and they had worked so hard so that Martin Luther could not work these l- laborious jobs. He could go to university and study to become a lawyer, and Luther was groomed to be an expert in the law. Uh, and he was derailed from that practice when he was caught in this famous thunderstorm. And as he thought he was going to die in this thunderstorm, he prays not to God, but to St. Anna, which is Jesus' grandmother, and, and she's the patron saint of sailors and protectors of those pe- of people caught in storms, which is kind of funny. And he vowed to St. Anna that if she delivered him from this storm, that he would dedicate his life to God and become a monk. And so he, enters the mon- he survives, um, and he enters the monastery with the mind of legal genius. And so, once again, you have on one hand this punishing righteousness and law of God, and on the other hand, you have this lawyer who is who understands the idea of justice, that God cannot merely uh, just uh, sweep our sins under the rug. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions of what our faith is. Uh, people think that Christianity actually makes people worse, that it allows people to do horrible things and then sort of just get away with it. Um, and, and so Martin Luther is, is grappling with these things and these, these weighty concepts of his righteousness and also that God in order to be a righteous God, a righteous um, God of the world cannot just sweep sin under the rug. It even says in Proverbs that it is an abomination to acquit the guilty. And we sort of know that uh, when you hear about a murderer, a child molester, who who gets off of a prison sentence, um, something they they should have, but through technicality, they just get set free from prison. There's something in you that says, that's wrong. And Martin Luther knew this. Um, And but because he had these two hands of God's righteousness and this mind of, mind of a lawyer that he, that, that he was trained in, he was full of guilt and fear. That's all he had to live with. But the church had a solution for Martin. But the solution was not Jesus. The solution was to try to live a good life, the best life that you could. But if you messed up, the church offered you the, the ability to do penance. It was this process, and it's, it's uh, depicted on TV a lot. You go into the confessory, and you say, you know, Father, my last confession has been since this time. And you confess before uh, the priest, and the priest will tell you to do something. Um, and that's because there was this idea, not from Scripture, taught that you had to do something to sort of make up for what you had done. And it could be something like, say, 10 Our Ma- Hail Marys or 10 Our Fathers, or if you stole something from someone to go and give back sin, it's stolen. And so this led, um, this was the only solution for Martin and his sin, and this led him to spend hours and hours in confession. At one point, he spent six hours in the confession booth, confessing all types of sins, and he wearied his confessor so much that essentially he said, Martin Luther, you need to get out and come back when you've done something really wrong. Um, But this led Luther to hate the righteousness of God. He was exhausted, he was burdened, he was overcome with a sense that all his penance was not able to satisfy the demands of a truly righteous God. And here's what he had to say about this time in his life. Somebody asked Martin Luther, "Do you lo- Martin Luther, do you love God? And he said, I did not love God. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable uh, sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity, by the law of the Ten Commandments, but God adds pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Martin Luther thinks that the gospel is sort of heaping on this idea of um, already uh, we have God's law and we break that, but then the gospel also heaps on additional guilt. And that's weird. How can Martin Luther think that that's what the gospel was for, and it's probably because that's what was being taught to him. And uh, I think that Luther at this stage sounds like a lot of students that I meet on the college campus. When they think about God, some of them are often repulsed by him. Why? Because all they think about when they think about God is that there's a God out there that all he wants to do is punish me and tell me to stop doing the things that I love. Exclusively, they have no idea of Anything good about the gospel, there's, when they think about good news, um, maybe someone hasn't told them or they don't think about it. But when they think about the character of God, all they can think of is punishment. And I would agree, I think Martin Luther would agree with these college students that if that is what churches, if that is what Christians are saying about who God is, is that the only thing that you can look forward to, I stress the word only, is God's punishment, then there really is good news. And I think that their responses are right. But I also think that uh, sometimes within the church we can fundamentally have that idea um, of what Martin Luther was going to. Because sometimes as someone who is faithfully following God, we can fall into the pattern of being exhausted. Have you ever uh, realized how exhausting it is to try to hide your sin or hide who you are in order to present yourself as someone better um, Nicole came up with this interesting, my, my wife came up with an interesting observation that sometimes when we've had a bad week, we've had a hard week, and maybe we've sinned in some ways that, um, uh, uh, just more than usual, um, sometimes we say to ourselves, you know, I really messed up bad this week, and uh, so let me skip going to church, and let me have a good week, and once I've had a better week, then I'll come to church. In some ways, that's the same idea that you think that because you've sinned, that you can't approach God. Um, but you want to clean yourself up a little bit. You don't want to have sinned so much. And then when you've cleaned yourself up, that's when you are acceptable. Um, sometimes that idea creeps in. Um, and if you've ever felt exposed like, like Martin Luther, you know what it is to come to worship and not feel like God is giving you life, but more like he is taking it away, to be exhausted um, trying to live before him. And, uh, and so that's what Martin Luther was like. And I want to tell you that um, if this is the, the life that you have somehow observed in terms of your Christian walk, be warned. It's not true. This is not what the life life of walking with God was meant to be like: oppressive, guilty, unfree, in a prison. And so, how did Martin Luther find the light and walk towards something that was genuinely free, something that gave him life? Well, when Martin Luther was in the monastery, um, he couldn't just be in confession all day feeling guilty. Um, he actually had a job to do. They, uh, in the monastery, they, they gave you things to do. And his job, uh, as I guess maybe the monks recognized how s- the intellect of Martin Luther, was to teach the Bible. And so he would give lectures, maybe not quite sermons, but lectures on the Bible. And when he got to Romans, he realized that the words surrounding this phrase, the righteousness of God which he hated, they mattered. Uh, The context of what was being said mattered. Um, And so let's take a look and read this again. It says, verse 117 says, for the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for the righteous shall live by faith. Um, The watershed moment for Martin Luther was this realization that faith, not doing penance, was a key part in understanding uh, a relationship, understanding our salvation in Christ. It was faith in Jesus Christ that led Luther from the prison of being weighed down for the awful weight of sin before a holy God. And Luther was not liberated in the thin air. He was liberated into this palace, this wonder of God's grace. And by palace, we want to experience, um, Martin Luther experienced the relief of the gospel, being safe finally, being unburdened before God. He experienced the wonder All that was encapsulated uh, in this salvation. And thirdly, the boldness of being before God, not being ashamed of the gospel. And so let's take a look at this palace that Martin Luther found himself in as he realized that faith was the key to a righteous life, not uh, doing more or trying to make up for the bad things he had done. Uh, Romans 1.17 is saying that the righteousness that God requires is not achieved, attained, merited, or earned, but it is, as it says, revealed. And revealed in the Greek is the same as it is in English. It is a, it's in the passive form. And so the gospel message that Paul is not ashamed of this good news because the righteous high standard of God that crushed Martin Luther would be not earned but revealed by those who live by faith. Luther understood that the righteousness of God was so high that no one could possibly live up to it. Um, And so, uh, and it's not as if the wrath of God is not in the Bible, it is. Um, Every place that talks about God punishing sin or threatening punishment is a very clear idea that God only accepts perfect obedience. And what Romans 1.17 is saying, that that high unattainable standard of righteousness of God would be given to people passively as a gift to be received by faith, and what Luther was after, a righteous life, could not be earned. God had to give it to sinners like you and me as a gift, and that gift is the gift of Jesus Christ who given to, shown to us in the gospel was God himself and came down and took on flesh to become like us in all of our weaknesses having a human body that could die and yet had no sin. He obeyed God perfectly, and before God, he was perfect, but have you ever noticed that also before men, He was perfect. I always thought in a quick reading of the gospel that Jesus went to court and because of this, of people uh, being corrupt and lying about him, that Jesus was found guilty and then sentenced to death. That's not what happens in the gospels. Jesus is actually pronounced innocent by a human governmental court three times and then crucified. That is an injustice that I think that if we dwell on it is hard to to contemplate. Someone being declared innocent three times and then crucified on a cross. Before God, Jesus was innocent. But before men, Jesus was innocent. He was found completely righteous um, and justified. And no one can take that away from him. And he gives that righteousness to us by faith. The phrase from faith or to faith tells us uh, in that passage, That from the very beginning of our dealings with God, from the very beginning of the Bible, our righteousness before God has always been um, by faith, meaning that we receive his righteousness. I think uh, as you think about faith, it's uh, it's easy to get tripped up because the way that, uh, I guess I'm going to say, in our cultural moment, the way that faith is used is not the way that the Bible uses faith. I'll give you an example. Uh, when you hear, just in the common sphere, people say, you got to have faith. You know, um, I really, I, uh, I don't know if I'm going to get this job. I just really, I just got to believe. If I believe hard enough, I can have it. Um, or if, um, you know, there's a sporting event, right, and it's like, well, I just really have faith that that team will win. Or uh, maybe someone has said something really horrible to you like this. Well, the reason that God didn't do this, like heal your friend or um, didn't give you this job is because you just didn't have enough faith. You've experienced that before or you've heard phrases like that. Um, in all of those phrases, the strength of faith, what faith is, is about you. Your ability to believe hard enough. If I can just believe hard enough or the reason that something didn't happen is because it's because of me because I didn't, I didn't believe or I didn't trust hard enough. Um, that is very what we call very subjective faith. That The, reason that the thing that holds faith up is us, the subject. But biblical faith has to do with the object of your faith. Um, and in this case, the object of our faith is the Lord Jesus. Uh, I give this example to, um, as, as a very simple way of thinking about it, uh, of people who struggle to understand what does faith in Christ really mean? We, we talk about it all the time, but what does it look like? Um, and I use the example of the rope. I want you to imagine someone who's very self-assured, uh, someone who you think um, is just very confident, and uh, this person is a rock climber. So there's two rock climbers, and they have this rope, and they're going to rappel off this mountain. And imagine someone who you wish you were, just very confident. Uh, they have a lot of experience. They're going to rappel off this mountain um, with no problem at all. They're very physically fit. But the rope that they have is very flimsy. It doesn't matter what this person feels, how strong and confident they feel. If the rope is flimsy, and they go and jump off the mountain, Rope will break and they will die. They'll die confidently, knowing, thinking that they know all that, the things that they can do, um, but they'll still die. Now I want you to think about someone who's more like you and me. God calls us to do many things that are hard, to die to ourselves, to love our neighbors, um, to go and tell people about Jesus, uh, to walk before him, things that are often scary and difficult. And so we approach God sometimes very timid, inexperienced, and scared. But the rope that we have can hold many thousands of pounds more than our own weight. And so someone who's very timid goes to the mountain and repels off. And maybe it looks weird and it's kinda messy, but this person is fine. Why? Because the strength of our faith doesn't have to do with us and our confidence. The strength of our faith has to do with the object of our faith. In this case, the rope. The rope is Jesus Christ and his promises. There's lots of reasons to doubt ourselves because we mess up all the time. We're imperfect. But strong faith, true faith, biblical faith says, yeah, but what do you think about Jesus? Is he strong? Is he faithful? It, it does his blood actually cover and wash away our sins? If you want to have strong faith, stop looking inward. That's not where faith comes from. Look to the object of your faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. The more you look to him, no matter what's going on around you, no matter how weak or scared you feel, That rope will support you. And so Martin Luther found himself realizing the strength of the gospel because it didn't have to do with him and doing something to make up for what he did. It had to do with what Jesus had done to give us a righteous life, and that is something that he could stand upon forever, that he would not let anyone take away from him or denigrate. And so um, as we think about the... um, uh, the pr- the the primary focus of faith, we see, we come back to our verse, and we hear that it says, it ends with, as, uh, and the righteous shall live by faith. Now, that is a quote that's quoted a couple more times in the New Testament, but it comes from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. But if you were to go and look at this phrase in Habakkuk, and you would look at the sentences immediately prior and immediately after, you would be very confused. You would say, I think, Mar- I think Paul is taking this verse out of context because I don't see anything here that has to do with um, trusting God's righteousness or his faith uh, or, or anything uh, like he's using it in the book of Romans. Um, and that's when we have to see things in their greater context, uh, the you know, entire context of the book of Habakkuk. And that's just a, sort of a, a key to interpreting the Old Testament. Usually when you look at things in context, you just do that, what comes right before, what comes right after but sometimes you have to read the entire book to get the message. And let me summarize for you the book of Habakkuk. It's very quick. In this time, uh, the land of Judah is being oppressed by this enemy tribe called, uh, enemy nation called Assyria. And Assyria was brutal. They would strip their enemies naked, put hooks in their mouths, and tie them together and drag them along that way. They'd also cut off the heads of all their enemies and put them in a big pile to frighten their enemies. They were really brutal. And Habakkuk saw the Assyrians threatening um, and, and doing battle with Judah. And Habakkuk pleaded to God, God, would you please deliver your people? We, we can't endure this. Please do something about the Assyrians. And God said, I will do something about the Assyrians. I'm going to raise up an even more wicked um, and more powerful nation called the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are going to destroy the Assyrians. And Habakkuk was like, that's a weird answer. Um, why would you do that? How come you don't raise up like you did before some hero from Israel to go and kill, to destroy all the Assyrians? Why would you do this? And he ends the book saying, praising God for his wisdom, which if you read it, it doesn't really make any sense. I mean, to us, it's like, that's weird. Um, But now think about the gospel story. God comes and sends, or God sends his son Jesus Christ to the world. And what do we do with him? We want him to overthrow the government. We want him to give us unlimited food. We want him to do all these things to give us a more prosperous life. And yet, Jesus continues to retreat because he's laser-focused on this one thing that he has to do, which is die for your sins and my sins on the cross. And so he avoids these opportunities for fame and for, for being the kind of savior we want, but not the one that we need. And then what happens to him in his life? in collusion with the Jewish religious authorities and the Roman um, mach- governmental machine, these two forces conspire and put Jesus to death on a cross. Now imagine you lived back then, or even now. Do you want a savior who is weak and doesn't give you anything that you ask him for and then dies on a cross? That doesn't sound like a savior that I want. And yet, God would use that very strange and seemingly illogical situation to bring about your salvation to shed his righteous life for your sinful one to give that to you and to give you this promise that his blood would truly wash away your sins that is the good news it's not how we would have expected it but that's how it came and so when paul says quoting habakkuk that the righteous shall live by faith he's telling you that as you look around it doesn't seem like god is winning at all it doesn't seem like the plan of God is the one that you would have come up with to save people. And yet, he uses it to save us. And so he's, asked, he's calling you, as you think about um, the salvation of God coming to us by faith, for the righteous shall live by faith. He is calling you to understand that as you look around you, you may not understand my plan. But I want you, dear children, to trust me. Trust that I know what I'm doing that I am your loving God, and that through me, you can have this salvation. You can escape the eternal flame. You can come to me in peace and live in a palace. And Jesus did not disappoint us. In all that he endured, he won for us this closeness, this wonder of God. Um, as Luther finally understood what the Bible was teaching and the glory of and the peace, and the relief, and the wonder, he looked around at what the church was doing, and he saw that the church was not spending their time focused on this message, but what were they doing? During Martin Luther's time, the church was calling people to look towards indulgences, and they were selling them. And so uh, that, when you think, uh, if you know, Martin Luther started his protest with the 95 Theses. He nailed them up on the doors of Wittenberg Castle, um, trying to get a debate going, trying to get some dialogue, Um, And he protested that way, and most of the protests that you read deal with indulgences. And so, uh, just a brief history of indulgences. They started in the 12th and 13th century, um, and they were given because uh, the Catholic Church was involved in the Crusades, and soldiers were really frightened. They said, if we go on the Crusades and we die, are we going to end up, um, and we're not going to be able to do all the things that we're supposed to do, the penance and the good works and all these things that you say that normal people are supposed to do. If we die in battle, we're going to go to hell or we're going to go to purgatory. Purgatory not being in the Bible, but they talked about it. And so the Catholic church said, okay, um, we will grant you an indulgence that if you die on the battlefield, you can just be, um, you don't have to worry. You're going to be absolved of um, those things that you have to do, the things that we require normal people to do to get into heaven. And then uh, that Granting eventually morphed into something that was really fantastic. The priests said to themselves, "We have merited for ourselves." These are the priests, the religious people. We have merited for ourselves an unlimited amount of merit, and because of our good works, and so we can now sell those to people who might want to try to do some good things. They can try to 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 benefit off of our unlimited merit before God, which I think is a funny thing for a priest to say, Um, and. This wasn't merely a theological thing. This was a very emotional thing. Um, I want you to hear uh, an excerpt from a sermon that was being preached to people during Martin Luther's day. Uh, One last contextual thing. Not only could you buy indulgences for yourself, which would, um, so officially, it's supposed to release you from life penalties of your sin, but things got really mixed up eventually where people were buying these things to uh, get them released from, um, essentially essentially hell. It became that. Um, but, it, but you could also buy them for people who had passed away, who you were told were, were, were suffering in purgatory or in hell. Or not in hell, only in purgatory. But here's, what, here's the emotional um, appeal. Here's what John Testel, uh, a big preacher at that time, was preaching to people like you and me. Don't you hear the voices of your dead parents and other relatives crying out? Have mercy on us, for we suffer great punishment and pain. From this, you could release us with a few alms or with some money. We have created you, fed you, cared for you, and left you our temporal goods. Why do you treat us so cruelly and leave us to suffer in these flames when it takes only a little to save us? You might think that indulgences have come and gone. Uh, as early as this year, Pope Francis uh, gave a bunch of youth indulgences. If they, he said that, I will grant you an indulgence if you attend this family conference. Um, and so the idea that indulgences are, are long gone, apparently not, not so much. Uh, they exist even in our day. And none of it is from the Bible. And so with this backdrop, we can finally turn uh, to Romans 1.16. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The presence of indulgences was a symptom of a bigger problem, that the church was ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ was not sufficient to actually save people is what the church was telling people, even though Romans one sixteen explicitly said it. And then it says this wonderful thing, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Um, when I encountered this verse, I always thought that uh, this was the verse that was saying that Jews were really special, but everyone else was kind of a second-class Christian. Uh, that's not what it's saying at all. What Paul is saying, he is saying that all the promises given to the Jewish people in the Old Testament. uh, Everything like, the Lord is my shepherd, or I will be your God and you will be my people, or um, uh, I will walk with you, I will be with you, do not be afraid. All of these promises of the Old Testament have now become yours in Christ. Paul emphasizes this at the end of Galatians 6. He says that the church is the Israel of God. And so when we read our Old Testament, we don't just see history, we don't just see um, a bunch of moral examples, be more like David, be more like Abraham, and look at how great their faith was. These promises given of old become ours in Christ. We talked about the palace of being found in the gospel, uh, and that was one of the major ones, and that is what caused Martin Luther to wonder, and that is why he risked his life to bring this gospel to all people. It put him and turned him into a man on mission. When Luther hung up the 95 Theses, the whole of the Western world was turned upside down, and it gained traction because Luther was speaking about the concerns that were on the hearts of every common person, that they sort of sensed that, the idea that God is this righteous judge and that all I have to look forward to him is his uh, perfection and my future punishment Um, just could not, uh, people knew that something was missing, and when Martin Luther began to say that this is not the gospel, you cannot gain favor with God by giving money, buying indulgences, or, or gaining favor with God that way, but it would have to come through Jesus. It began to resonate with people, and people were drawn to God. Now, I want you to think about your mission in Clovis Grace Church. As you think about people out there, what are the reasons that sometimes keep you from sharing the gospel. I know one of them. I think that people are uh, somehow really angry about God. They are, have had some bad experience in the church or maybe they watch a lot of YouTube videos and they see a bunch of people with signs screaming at people and they think, um, you know, you're a Christian, get away from me. Um, I don't want to talk about that. And if what they've been eating, if what they've been feeding on is this idea, this distorted view of God, that he has no good news, for sinners like us, that he has no graciousness, no love, then you can agree with them and you can empathize, thinking of the, the weight that Martin Luther bore, that people who don't have Jesus, who see God like that, bear that weight as well. And you can have compassion on them and know that if that is what you have heard about God, know that that is not a genuine gospel. Um, that the God of grace has given us the Lord Jesus to escape this wrath, to have God's justice satisfied on him alone and has given you a palace of his grace. Uh, But you won't always meet angry people. Some people are just lost and hopeless. And what wonder this is to give them a story bigger than they could possibly imagine or live for. The reason that people um, live for things that are less than God is because that's all they feel like there is. But when God promises you Um, his promises in Christ, you have not only all the promises of God, but all of the good things that he promises that come from a life following Jesus. And one day, as we always um, remind ourselves, Jesus Christ will come back. He will set all things right. He will establish a new heavens and new earth. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more sickness and no more death, and sin will be done away with, and he will give us renewed bodies to live before God forever whether someone is angry, whether someone is hopeless, you, church, Grace Clovis, have the very message that Martin Luther was gifted with as well. I'm not saying that you need to do and copy Martin Luther, but I am saying the thing that set his heart on fire for people, to know that the reformation that he started was for all people, is the very same message that you have. And so as you think about the people, your friends, your neighbors, the campus so close, there are many souls who don't know this gospel, and you as a church are here in this community to let them know that there is a God of grace, that he has given Jesus Christ, and he's given Jesus Christ for all people, and call them to believe and trust in him. What a wonderful mission and calling. Let's pray together. Our Father God, I thank you uh, that you have given.